Well, we've been in a study of the book of Philippians, but we're going to do something a little different today. Today, throughout the nation, has been designated Citizenship and Religious Liberty Sunday, and pastors have been asked to preach on that topic, which I plan to do. So next Sunday, we will we'll return to our study of the book of Philippians. We'll also be observing Baptism and Lord's Supper Uh, next Sunday as well. Uh, But today, I'd like to share a message that I've entitled, uh, Being the Salt of the Earth. Being the Salt of the Earth. I know that we are all uh, deeply concerned uh, by the secularization of America and the exclusion of Christianity uh, from the public sphere of life. We have come a long way from our founding fathers who firmly believed that the influence of Christianity was an indispensable support for the good of our nation. And why did they believe that? They understood that religion provides the only basis for morality. And without morality, the freedoms enjoyed in our nation would quickly become license for greed, selfishness, and lust, with our nation literally falling apart from the inside out. Therefore, they welcome, they encourage religious influence in the civic and public life of a self-governing people. Well, you ask, well, what about the First Amendment to the Constitution, the supposed uh, separation of church and state? Well, the First Amendment simply prohibits the establishment of an official national religion. But the First Amendment also prohibits government from interfering with the free exercise of religious belief and practices. The founding fathers encouraged the free exercise of religion because they realized without the influence of religion, our nation would not survive. George Washington said this in his very first inaugural address as president. He says, the foundation of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality, uh, persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And then in his last farewell address, after he uh, served his terms of president, he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain... Would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, the firmest props of the duties of men and citizens? The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principles. 
And then John Quincy Adams, the second president of the United States of America, he made this comment, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. And then Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, one of the most esteemed, respected justices that has ever been on the court, in his 1832 commentaries on the Constitution wrote this. He says, It yet remains a problem to be solved in human affairs whether any free government can be permanent where the public worship of God and the support of religion constitute no part of the policy or duty of the state in any assignable shape. So the position of the founding fathers was, although the government would not mandate religion, and every person was, follow, was free to follow the dictates of his or own conscience in matters of religion, they did at the same time encourage Support, welcome religious influence, and especially Christianity, again, as an indispensable support for our nation's good. And sadly, uh, this perspective has changed, and we all realize that. We are now living in a nation that has abandoned its Christian roots, and it is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith and its practices. We are no longer welcomed and encouraged and supported as we once were in the uh, public sphere of life. The liberty uh, the church has enjoyed in America is changing, and the new normal uh, may become persecution. So the question is, how should we as Christians respond to what is happening in our nation? And I believe the answer is found in Christ's statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. So I hope you picked up a copy of your sermon notes as you were coming in, and you'll notice that that uh, verse is printed for you right at the top of your notes. Jesus said, you, speaking to his followers, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled upon underfoot by men. So let me begin by looking at three things, just as an introduction to this verse. Uh, the main point, the presupposition, and the paradox. The main point, it's all about the influence of believers on the world. That word influence is the key word. This verse is all about how we influence the world in which we live. The presupposition is obvious. The world is what? Decaying. It is decaying, therefore it needs the preserving power of salt which believers provide. So it's all about influence, and the presupposition is the world is decaying. Therefore it needs the preserving power of salt which believers provide. And then the paradox, uh, the world hates the very people they need the most. Uh, we saw this in the life of Jesus. What person did this world ever need more than Jesus? Yet, this world, what? Crucified Christ. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to what? Persecute you, referring to his followers. So, the world hates the very people they need the most. So, with that introduction, look with me now at three 
key truths that we can glean uh, from this one verse. First, the worth of believers, and then we'll look at the work of believers, and then the warning to believers. Look at the worth of believers. Like salt, the worth of believers lie in the inherent character qualities which makes believers distinct from the world. Like salt, the worth of believers lie in the inherent character qualities which makes believers distinct from the world. Salt is a commodity that we take for granted today. But in Jesus' day, there was no more valuable commodity than salt since it was the primary preservative to keep food from spoiling. Salt was often traded ounce for ounce with gold. Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt. It was a common practice among Jews and Arabs to enter what they called salt covenants, where they would use the exchange of salt, because it was considered so valuable, to finalize an agreement. God even established salt as a part of the Old Testament worship. The grain offerings all had to be sprinkled with salt. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he is giving believers a very high compliment. But of course, this raises the question, why the compliment? And you may respond, well, isn't the answer pretty obvious, Brother Andy? The worth of believers, like salt, lies in their preserving influence in a decaying world. And I agree. But I would emphasize a slightly different uh, perspective. Salt has the power to do what it does only because of what it is. Salt is a distinct chemical compound made up of sodium and chloride, which makes salt different from all other things. And there's a great lesson here for believers. Like salt, believers possess the power to have a preserving influence on a decaying world, but only because of the inherent qualities they possess in Christ. So you need to ask, what are the distinctive qualities that constitute true believers and make them different in this decaying world, which enables them then to have a preserving influence? And the answer is found in the previous 10 verses, which we call the Beatitudes. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Of course, I don't have time to preach on these eight Beatitudes, but let's just read them. Uh, because uh, when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's referring to these Christ-like character qualities that enable us as believers to have that preserving influence on a decaying world. Matthew chapter 5, I'll begin reading at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? The character quality of what? Humility. Humility. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's talking about those who don't rejoice over sin, but mourn over sin. That they see sin as abomination in the eyes of God. And they desire to turn from sin and to follow the Lord. 
And then verse 5, blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That concept of meekness has the idea of absolute and total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. It has the idea of releasing all of your rights to Him in order to be His servant, in order to be submitted to His authority, to serve His agenda, to seek His approval. That's what meekness is. And then he says, blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, blessed are those who seek after and acquire God-like, Christ-like character. And then he says, blessed are the what? Merciful. That's talking about our attitude towards others. That we don't have that holier-than-thou attitude as believers. But we realize that we've been sent into the world to seek and save those who are lost. Therefore, we go out with great mercy, with great compassion, with great love to all men, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their character and conduct. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Notice, pure where? In heart. We've been talking a lot about that in our study in the book of Philippians. That authentic Christianity is lived out in the heart as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and changes the heart and begins to transform our lives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We don't live to build fences. No, we live to build bridges, to bring reconciliation to one another. And then he says, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are those who are unwilling to compromise God's truth. And they'll stand on truth, they'll obey God's truth, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost. Verse 11, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. So the worth of a believer is found in Christ-like character. Our influence in the world depends on our character. We can do what God called us to do only when we are being what God called us to be. See, if we don't watch out, we can become so focused on developing better and more salt shakers that we neglect the purity of the salt. The church in America has developed many salt shakers, many churches, many programs, many ministries, many outreaches. But what is the point if, as Jesus said, the salt has become tasteless? If it is lost the inherent qualities that enables it to have the preserving influence. So how about you? What is being dispensed out of the salt shaker of your life? What is being dispensed out of the salt shaker of this church's life? I'm not asking what we are doing for Christ. I'm not asking what ministries you're involved in. I'm asking what is the quality of our lives? What is the character of our lives? Seven days a week, when we're in public and we're in, we're in private, is Christ's character being formed in us to be dispensed out through us to a decaying world? And look at the next point in your notes. 
For salt to have influence, it has to get out of the salt shaker. For salt to have influence, it has to get out of the salt shaker. For the church to have influence, believers cannot stay bottled up in the church, must be, but must be dispensed throughout the community and the world. Now just let me be very honest and transparent for a moment about my reflections on where much of the church is in the United States of America today. I believe we're in retreat. It's, it's almost like there's a, we've developed a siege mentality because of what's happening in our culture as it becomes increasingly hostile towards Christianity. And with this retreating and this sort of siege mentality, sort of just, you know, circling the wagons and getting inside, I'm seeing more and more anger that I think does absolutely no good. I mean, there's a lot of whining about what's happening in our culture. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of disgust. And I understand that. But folks, the time's not to whine. It's to shine. It's time to start being what God called us to be. We need to begin to, begin to understand it's not about coming to church. It's about being the church. And if what is happening here on Sundays and our other ministries and programs isn't resulting in getting us out, dispersed into the larger community, then it means absolutely nothing. See, we need to be diffused as a church into the public sector of life. We, we, we need to realize that that's how God intended it for, for us to work. That we would be that salt that would be dispensed in our, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. There in that army company or battalion or in your workplace or wherever it might be. That's how God intended it to work. In other words, what we're talking about here when you think of the salt being dispensed, just another way of looking at what? The Great Commission. Jesus said what? Go! 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 Into all the world. To what? Make disciples of men. Go! And, and realize now that's the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. That's what should be our fundamental task as believers. And the gospel is the key. So we need to get out of this retreat, out of this siege mentality, and realize the opportunity that we have. Realize that the gospel is the answer for our nation. The gospel is the, end, is the answer for every individual life, and we have that. That's been entrusted to us, and God wants to get us dispersed throughout the entire community that the gospel might have its influence. Now look with me at the work of believers. We've seen the, the worth of believers. Look at the work of believers. And I want us to see three things. First, as salt gives flavor to food, believers give flavor to life. As salt gives flavor to food, believers give flavor to life. Christianity is to life what salt is to food. Christianity lends flavor to life. The tragedy is... People often connect Christianity with what takes the flavor out of life. Uh, one man stated it very well. I don't know that you could put it any better than this. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, 
their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. William Barclay, the great, great Bible expositor, wrote, Men need to discover the lost radiance of the Christian faith. In a worried world, the Christian should be the only man who remains serene. In a depressed world, the Christian should be the only man who remains full of the joy of life. There should be a sheer sparkle about the Christian life. Wherever he is, if he is to be the salt of the earth, the Christian must be the diffuser of joy. And one of the greatest opportunities to attract the lost to Jesus is to express joy that refuses to be conquered by adversity. You know, salt is actually a beautiful illustration of this truth. As I mentioned earlier, salt is made up of two compounds, sodium and chloride. Sodium is a metal, and it's a metal so soft that you can actually cut it with a knife. But at the same time, it can cause a severe burn if you were to hold it in your hand. It, it literally will hop and jump on the surface of water. And if you add too much of it to water, uh, it will cause a violent explosion. Chloride is a yellow gas with a very disagreeable odor. If you breathe too much, you'll feel as though it's, it's literally choking you to death. It's poisonous, and it can cause death. Yet, ordinary table, table salt is made up of sodium and chloride, and we put that on our food, and we eat it. Sodium and chloride, listen now, here's the point, are elements taken by themselves would bring harm or even death. But when they are mixed together in just the right quantities, salt produces what? Is produced with its many benefits. It is the wise chemist that knows how to take the various elements and cause all things to work together for a what? Good purpose. And if you are a believer, God is the master chemist over your life. Can you trust God knowing some of the elements that He uses in your life are bitter? They are painful, and they are potentially lethal if God were even to make the smallest of mistakes. Can you trust God to cause all things to work together for your good? If you trust Him, then rejoice and celebrate life. And from the salt shaker of your life, dispense Jesus, who flavors all of life with joy inexpressible. We now come to the second function of salt. As salt creates thirst for water, believers create thirst for Christ. As salt creates thirst for water, we've all experienced that, the presence of believers should create a thirst for Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, The glory of the gospel 
is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, in other words, when we are living out those eight Beatitudes, that distinctive Christ-like character, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. See, we are right back to the importance of authentic, godly character that is clearly distinguishable from the world in which we live. The Christ you are sprinkling from your salt shaker is not the Christ you talk about, but it's the Christ whose life you live out. It has been said, what you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. As salt, we are to bring flavor to life. We're to create a thirst for Christ. But now we come to the third and what is the actual primary function of salt uh, as we examine the work of the believer. As salt is a preservative, believers slow corruption. As salt is a preservative in the same way believers slow co- co- corruption. Again, in Christ's day, there were no refrigerators. Salt was used to keep things from going bad, from uh, becoming rotten. But to be effective, the salt had to be, what, rubbed into the meat. Jesus is teaching the presence of his followers would serve to preserve the world and have a purifying influence upon it. R.V. Tasker said, the disciples, accordingly, are called to be a moral disinfected in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing or non-existent. See, salt cannot be ignored. When it is present, you notice it. And you certainly notice it if it is missing. So does your presence make a difference? Does your presence make a difference in your home? Does it make a difference in your neighborhood or at school, at the workplace, with the company you keep? Does your presence have the effect of lowering corruption and elevating godly standards, or do people feel just absolutely free to spread filth around you and rottenness despite you being there? Salt we are to be, men and women who by our very presence halt the spread of corruption and give goodness its opportunity. And then finally, look at the warning to the believer. So we've seen the worth of the believer, which lies in those inherent character qualities of the Beatitudes that make us distinct from the world. We've seen the work of the believer. We're to bring flavor to life. We're to create thirst for Christ in the lives of people. And that we're to be that preservative to uh, slow corruption and elevate godly standards. And now the warning. Just as salt can become tasteless when contaminated by other minerals, Christians can lose their effectiveness when contaminated by sin and worldliness. Just as salt can become tasteless when contaminated by other minerals, Christians can lose their effectiveness when contaminated by sin and worldliness. Notice what Jesus said again. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, How will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Bottom line, here's the bottom line. If your presence makes no impact for the cause of Christ, it's obvious you have lost your saltiness. 
We should all be deeply concerned about the diminishing influence of the church on our culture today. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are more churches than ever before. There are more preachers. There are more programs. There are more ministries. There are more outreaches than ever before in the history of our country. We have become skilled at using the media through TV, radio, and internet. But despite all of that, we're losing the battle for our culture. Why? Why? Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. We have enough salt shakers to do the job. We just don't have enough pure, uncontaminated salt to go in them, to be sprinkled throughout our society. So again, we're right back. We need to leave our anger. We need to stop whining, stop complaining, and realize that's why we are who we are. We have been called for such a day as this, to be salt in a decaying world. And that should not surprise us. And, you know, really the answer is found in our study of the book of Philippians. What's been the primary theme in the book of Philippians? The priority to what? Not only live, but share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church needs. The church needs to return to the priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live that gospel message out and then to share it with others. And I'll close with a very simple illustration of of what I'm talking about. I remember this is prior to my conversion to Christ. I was at Auburn University, and there was a, a big protest going on on the college campus. And I got right in the middle of that protest. Like I said, I was lost as a goose. And, uh, uh, and, but then, sort of like salt being sprinkled, all of a sudden, sprinkled throughout that huge group that was, came these uh, kids that were students that were involved in Campus Crusade. They, they were believers. They were Christian. And they began to interact with those that were involved in the protest, just loving them just engaging them, uh, looking for opportunities to share. And they, were, and they were passing out these little leaflets. And, uh, and, and they gave me one, and I'll never forget it. It, it was, it, uh, like I said, I didn't know Christ at that time. I didn't know, come to know Christ to probably uh, about another year, year and a half. But I'll never forget the marked impact that, that made on me. It, it was just a simple little story, how a, a man had come home from work, and he just wanted a little downtime, and he was in his lounge chair, and he was reading the paper, and his uh, little preschool girl, you know, came running up to him, Daddy, Daddy, she, she wanted to play, and he just wanted a little time, just a few moments to relax, and then he would, he would get involved with her. So he, he, he said, i got to find something to keep her occupied just for a little bit so I can relax. And as he was reading the paper, he noticed this, this picture of, of uh, this map of the world. And he had this fantastic idea, and he got him a pair of scissors, and he cut that thing in a bunch of a lot of pieces, and he gave them to his little girl, and he says, hey, you use this as a puzzle, and you put the world back together again, and when you have the world back together, me and you will get together, and we'll have some fun time. And he thought, this is going to take her a little time, and I'll be able to finish the paper. Well, I mean, just seconds pass. I mean, not even a minute. And she comes running in, Daddy, 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 I've put the world back together. And he said, how in the world did my little girl do that? And he said, he said how did you do that so quickly? 
And she says, well, Daddy, I, I turned the pieces over on the other side. And on the other side, there was a picture of a man. And when I put the man together, the world came together and was made right. And, and, the, and the truth is so simple but so powerful. That's what we're called to do as believers at the church. We win one person at a time. That's how we change our culture. We change our culture by realizing what God has called us to be as believers. We're salt. We're light. To be diffused out there, outside the four walls, in every realm of society. That's why we need Christian school teachers in our public schools. That's why we need Christians getting involved in politics and running for office. That's why we need Christian doctors and lawyers. and That's why we need Christian men and women in our armed forces. See, we need to get Christians diffused in every realm, every area of life. And then as we are, maintain the priority of living and sharing the gospel and realizing we change the culture one heart at a time. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to alter the direction of this nation. I mean, we all recognize we're in the mess we're in because we've abandoned moral principles. Well, how in the world are we going to return to moral principles? You can't legislate that in terms of it being effective. You bring people back to morality by the heart being changed. And folks, there's only one thing that can change the heart, and that's Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. There's not a politician that can do that. There's not a preacher that can do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, we are in difficult days, but these are exciting days. I mean, right after the example of salt, what does he talk about? You are the what? The light of the world. Well, the darker the hour, what? The greater the light shines. The greater the opportunity to have an impact. And, and, and just one last thing. The Greek grammar, and this is powerful, the Greek, when he said, you are the salt of the earth, the Greek grammar would literally read, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. It also reads that way with, when he talks about being the light of the world. You and you alone are the light of the world. In other words, if you don't get diffused out into the community to be salt, to bring flavor to life, to create thirst in the hearts of others for Jesus and to be a preserving influence to slow down corruption and exalt God, there is nobody else to do it. There is no other light to dispel the darkness. You're it. And that's why I've left you on planet earth that you might be my representative and you might be that salt, you may be that light. So I just encourage us as a church family Let's renew our commitment to living and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not develop a seeds mentality. Let's not retreat. Let's not just whine about what's happening, becoming disgusted about what. Let's be salt. Let's be slight. Let's demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ in the culture in which we live, giving wonderful flavor to life. Creating thirst and being that preservative. Father, we can only do that 
by you being that power at work in us uh, through your grace. So, Lord, all we know to do is to yield our lives uh, to you. Lord, we realize this morning that the key is possessing those inherent qualities, those Christ-like characters that make us distinct from the world. And Lord, uh, only you can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit as we yield our lives to you. So Lord, that is what we do now. We yield. We surrender. Uh, It is our desire not only to come to church, but to be the church, to walk as Jesus walked, to seek and save those who are lost. So Lord, forgive us for so easily becoming distracted in this day of difficulty. Forgive us for our level of disgust and anger that really has not really motivated us to be what we've been called to be. And so, Lord, let us turn our eyes from our culture to Christ. And as we turn our eyes to you, to be what you've called us to be, that then you would use us to make a difference in the hearts and lives of the men and women and the boys and girls that we rub shoulders with every day, seven days a week in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever it might be. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended, I just this message has been to believers. And so I just encourage you as a believer uh, to yield, to surrender and say, God, I, I, I want to be what you've called me to be. And I can't do it apart from your grace, apart from you being that power at work in me. Uh, but this morning I, I want to surrender to you for that purpose, uh, not only to live, but to share uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, oh, we would encourage you uh, to make your heart his home, to invite him in, to forgive you of your sin, to become the Savior and Lord of your life as you acknowledge that he loved you enough to come to this world to die for you, to die for the penalty of your sin and to rise again to offer you forgiveness and new life in Him. So you make that decision today, and you'll be forever grateful. So please stand as the invitation is being extended, and I'll remain here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. If you'd like to unite with the church family as a believer, it would be our joy to receive you.